0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I don't know what the dinner table was like at your house growing up or what it's like now. Uh, We try to make it interesting, which is hard with boys, because whatever you ask boys, the answer is just, good, fine. You got a million dollars today. How was this? Good. So... So my wife is trying to get creative, we have a word of the day, we have a wonder of the day, and it starts generating conversations of various kinds. And this week, uh, Monday or Tuesday, we got into, I honestly don't know how we got to this topic, but we started to talk about the possibility, you know, of God creating other worlds, not earth. So other words that we don't know about and would we'll never know about, and I think C.S. Lewis even entertained this, so it must be a holy idea, and, and so I'm talking about my kids, I'm like, you know it's possible God has created other places like earth, you know, where there are creatures made in his image and, you know, they're starting to think about it. And I said, I wonder if that's, you know, if that was the case, like if all those places fell into sin, I wonder if some of them didn't. I wonder what that's like. And right when I said it, my in my eight-year-old said, I want to go there. And uh, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Who would not want <laughs> to go there? But I want to keep the conversation going, so I ask him, why? Why would you want to go there? And then he said, quote, so I could be new. I said, what do you mean, so you could be new? And he said, so I could start over. And I kind of knew what he was getting at, because I know Holden, um, and so I just tell him, like, hey, bud, the Bible says, you know, because when you live in the pastor's house, there's a lot of sentences start this way, (laughs) the Bible says that you can have new life right now in Christ. And Holden is kind of our matter-of-fact kid, and he just looks at me, and he goes, nope, I can't go back and correct all my mistakes, and that's why I want to start over. Now, this is what I love about kids, because they say out loud the things that you feel in your gut, but you're either too proud or too ashamed to say out loud. Because don't you ever feel that way, that you just want to start over? Like how great it would be just to have a new life? One of my favorite albums is uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by a band called Wilco. And one of my favorite songs on that album, Jeff Tweedy, sings this lyric, I know I would die if I could come back new. It's a funny thing, the way that we live our lives. I mean, we, this group of people especially, Uh, We are an ambitious, eager bunch. And so we are all striving to find our place in this world. We want to be noticed. We want to be significant. If we can't be significant, we at least want to be important. Uh, We want to be well-liked. We want to have security. We want to have peace. And so we just keep striving. And the funny thing about it is it doesn't matter, it seems, how much we make or what we accomplish. It's just never enough. And it's like we're running on this treadmill, trying to make a name for ourselves, and the regrets and the mistakes just keep piling up all around us, and we see them, and we want to get away from them, and so we start running faster. But it's a treadmill. (laughs) You can't get away from them. And every now and then, you just get that feeling. You just think, man, I would like to start over. I would like a new life. If my 8-year-old already feels that, I can't imagine how much some of you must feel it right now. I feel it. But I have good news for us today. Today is the day, if you're willing, that we step off of the treadmill and we begin a new journey. Nothing can erase your past. You, you can't go back and correct all your mistakes, but you can begin a new journey that sets you free from your past. That gives you a liberating new start in life. Now, I have to warn you, if you take this journey, there is a kind of death involved. But you'll come back new. Today, we begin a journey through the book of Romans. Some of you are slightly disappointed with that. You are hoping for maybe some new secret rather than some old book that you've read before. Listen, this old book is no ordinary book. Uh, There is a quality of Romans that has had a profound impact on individuals throughout the centuries. It has had a profound impact on the course of history. Uh, Great people of the faith, Augustine, Luther, Wesley, all of them were influenced tremendously by reading this book. Martin Luther described this book as the chief book in the New Testament, and the purest gospel. And it's not just great men and women of the faith who have been influenced by it, it's just ordinary people, countless ordinary people like us, have encountered the purity of the gospel in this book and been radically changed by it. It's the most thorough articulation of the gospel in the New Testament, and that's where its power lies. Uh, If you've been around, we're always talking about being a gospel-centered church. We talk about our need to believe the gospel more deeply and apply it more broadly. And maybe uh, that's become more rhetoric than reality. Maybe it's just words that we can talk about. That's an easy thing to happen. You can just sort of drift from the thing that you're chasing after. Because we're distracted by all kinds of other things— I so want the gospel to be more than rhetoric. In my own life and for our church, I want it to be a reality for us. I want us to be the kind of church where anyone who comes in can be changed radically because the gospel is so easily accessible in the words that we speak and in the relationships that we have and in the mission that we're about. I think that's what God wants— For our church. And that's what this book is for. That's what Romans is for. Because it invites us to lay aside our pride about what we know. It invites us and even calls us to lay aside uh, our fear of being truly known. It invites us to just learn afresh the gospel together. This book is about the new life that you all want and how to get it. That's the heart of the gospel. It is that God meets you right where you are. It's not as though you get off the treadmill and you start walking down the journey and all of a sudden God meets you there. No, it is by God's grace alone that you even get off the treadmill, that you even realize you're on the treadmill. So, I don't know what brought you here today, but if you have a desire to be new— If you want some kind of new start in your life that's not superficial, that has real substance and power to it, then God is willing to meet you right there. He won't be more ready next year. He won't be more ready when you get through this phase of your life or when you get your stuff together. God is ready and willing to meet you right now to make you new. That's the gospel. The gospel is not a message about what you need to do for God. It is a message about what God has done for you. If it was about what we needed to do, it wouldn't be good news at all. It would just be cranking up the speed in the hills on the treadmill. All right, so let me say this really clearly. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners, just people like us, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus And as we walk through the first eight chapters of Romans for the next few months, we are going to be diving into the depths of what that means for us and how it changes us. Today, I just want to look at two verses, though. Uh, They're in chapter 1, which you heard read, and they're verses 16 and 17. These two verses are kind of the thesis statement for the book. They give us a high-level view of what it is we're getting ourselves into here. Let me read them. Chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, One of the most important words in the New Testament uh, is this word, righteousness. Righteousness. And as you come to Romans, you'll see there's basically two kinds of righteousness. There's a righteousness of our own, that's what Paul calls it in Romans 10, and then there is a righteousness of God, or a righteousness from God. That's what's in Romans 17. and more explicitly and thoroughly, we'll get to it in Romans 3. There's a righteousness of our own and a righteousness that is from God. And the difference between these two kinds of righteousness is the difference between just running faster on the treadmill and starting a whole new life with God. And so we have got to distinguish these and understand them. And so that's all I want to do today is just take a look at the two sides of this coin, our own righteousness and what that means and what is the righteousness of God and how do we get it? All right, so let's begin by thinking about our own righteousness for a moment. In plain language, righteousness just means to be right. To have right standing. And so, everywhere you go, there are values and sort of codes of behavior that give you right standing with whatever group you're in. So, when you're in court, there's definitely a code that will keep you in right standing with the courts. But the same is also true with your group of friends at your place of work. It's true right here. There's all kinds of spoken and unspoken norms that give you a sense that you either fit in with this group— Or you don't. And that system of sort of acceptance and rejection is always at play. And it profoundly influences our beliefs and our behaviors. Because if you look at any sort of sociological, psychological, theological study, the evidence all points to the same truth, which is, we will do almost anything to belong, to fit in. And we don't normally think of it in these terms, but belonging becomes the validation of our righteousness and we don't use that term righteousness in that way, but that's really what's going on. And the truth is that our world operates on this system because in our world, our value, our belonging is determined by what we bring to the table. That's just the water we swim in. So, whatever gives you a sense, just deep down in your gut, again, not what you know, but just what's really functionally true in your heart, whatever gives you a sense of being okay, you know, that you're doing all right, that you're okay, whatever gives you a sense that you fit in, that you belong, that is a source of righteousness. It could be your intellect, it could be your looks, it could be your sense of humor, it could be your relationships, your political affiliation, your theological positions, it could be your work ethic. It could be the fact that you don't care if you fit in, which is just to say that you fit in with a group of people who pretends not to care that they fit in. Any of that can be a functional source of righteousness because whatever gives you a sense that you're okay and that you belong, that's your righteousness. Now, the reason that we want to fit in, the reason that we long for acceptance and approval and significance is because God actually put those desires in us. He gave us those desires for approval and acceptance and significance because his design was that we would find them, that we would satisfy those longings In him. And so the problem of sin, as the Bible describes it, is that sin has separated us from God so that we're not conscious of that design and has twisted these good desires. So that now we feel like we have to prove ourselves. We have to earn our place. We have to do something, bring something to the table to show that we do, in fact, belong. We do it with God and we do it with others. This is what Paul describes in Romans 10 as seeking to establish a righteousness of your own. It means that you feel good, that you are approved because of your merit, what you do. Now, I say all that to say this is the challenge that we will face when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to really trusting the gospel to produce lasting change in us, to make us new. Because when we go all in with Jesus, we have to say, I don't have any righteousness of my own. And that is a scary thing to say. It's like that awful dream that you have when you're out in public, and you suddenly realize you don't have any clothes on. That is a terrible nightmare. And the embarrassment you feel in that dream gives us some insight into, I think, what Paul is facing when he writes verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And it's, it's kind of an odd thing to say because people don't typically just volunteer that. They don't typically just say, I'm not ashamed of something unless, you know, maybe they kind of are. Or, or at least are tempted to be. Right? So if the hipster insists that he's not ashamed of his skinny jeans, it means he kind of is. And he's just trying to talk himself into it. No, this is really cool. It's really cool. Right? When a parent says... I'm not ashamed of my kids. What does that mean? It means your kid just did something real embarrassing, right? Otherwise, you, you wouldn't feel the need to, like, say that. And in the case of a parent, it's really true. You know, my kids do something embarrassing. I feel embarrassed. I feel—my t- uh, temptation is to sort of, like, I'm not with them. They're not with me, you know. Who are those kids' parents? But I think it through on the moment, in the moment, you know. I'm like, okay, no, these are my kids. I can't change that. I love them. I love them you know what, it's not about their performance, I'm their dad. You know, and I can think it through, I can remind myself of what's true and important, and I can come to the place very quickly where I can say, honestly, I am not ashamed of my kids, because they're my kids, All right? As we take a journey of believing the gospel and experiencing its power to change us, you will be tempted at times to be ashamed of that very gospel, You'll have moments where you just think to yourself, wait, should I really put all my eggs in this basket? Like, should I, should I really trust what the Bible says that it's really true today? You'll have moments when what you really need to grow and change is to be honest in your community and you will feel shame about that and you won't put yourself out there. You'll hold on to your reputation, which is your righteousness. Righteousness. We'll be ashamed that we can't change ourselves. Have you ever gotten to the place where you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired of constantly having to ask God for forgiveness and mercy and grace? When you get like that, the truth what's going on in your soul is you just don't want to be as helpless as the gospel says you are, because you're holding on to something. We'll have moments of shame when our friends notice that we're changing, that something's going on in our life, and they'll ask. What's going on with you? And in that moment, you will feel real timid to tell them that it's because of Jesus. I I think this kind of embarrassment, this kind of shame is is the temptation that Paul is fighting. And the reason that we would feel shame in all those situations is because we'd have to let go of our righteousness, and to do that would be to risk rejection. And that's what Paul has risked, and in fact, what he has gotten because of the gospel— Let's just think about the context of this letter for a moment. Paul is in Corinth, and he's writing a letter to the church in Rome. Uh, Unlike most of the churches we see in the New Testament, Paul didn't didn't plant this church. It was planted through people who had made their way to Rome. Uh, But Paul does feel a sense of responsibility for it because he is the apostle, God's appointed, chosen instrument apostle, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which is essentially kind of the known world outside of Jerusalem, and you want to talk about life not turning out the way you thought it would. All right, Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee, and as such, there are just two things that he despised—Gentiles and Christians. Gentiles were second-class citizens, and Christians were blasphemers in Paul's mind. Paul was so um, infuriated— by this uprising of Jesus' followers. Because they thought they had put him down. Uh, But he got up. He rose from the dead. And it launched this fervent movement of people who are defining life in a whole new way. And it drove Paul nuts. To the point where he got permission from the government to persecute and imprison Christians. Not just in Jerusalem. His zeal was beyond that. It was into all the surrounding areas. And so, Paul is literally chasing Christians down so that he might imprison them because of what they say about Jesus. And it's on one of those journeys to Damascus that Jesus shows up in Paul's life and changes him forever. Paul, that day, becomes a follower of Jesus. He becomes God's chosen instrument to the Gentiles. Now that is dying and coming back new. Take a mental note here. The life that you want, the life that God has for you, may not be what you imagine. But it is way better. Paul gave up everything that he built his life on and took up new life with Jesus. And you know what it got him? Rejection. See, Paul was on the inside. He was a rising star in the party of the Pharisees. But now, he's not only serving Jesus, whom the Pharisees delivered up to death, he's telling the Gentiles about Jesus. In other words, he loves the very things that he used to hate, and now he's on the outside because of it. He doesn't fit in with his old friends anymore. He's not in the cool crowd. And when the gospel moves you to the outside of any particular group, you're going to feel tempted to be ashamed of it. It's just the reality of what it means to want to fit in and to no longer fit in. To make things worse, uh, I wouldn't say Paul necessarily fit in with the Gentiles either, the people that he was called to. Have you ever been at a party or in some social gathering and you're in a group of people and they're going around and talking about stuff and it's just not stuff that you know anything about or maybe that you're not that interested in? What are you doing in your mind? It's like... You're just waiting for the conversation to come around to something that you have something to say about, because that's really what you're in this for, is to say something. And, uh, and maybe it does. But in Paul's world, I don't think it often did. You know, he would go to a city and go into the synagogue, which is kind of his people, but then he would start talking about how the Old Testament just points to Jesus, and they would kick him out and sometimes stone him and leave him for dead. And so then that would put him in the marketplace with the Gentiles. And it's not like Gentiles are sitting around talking about, you know, circumcision and Old Testament law and Jesus. That's not the subject of conversation. And so Paul always had to be that guy, you know, that guy who just abruptly changes the subject to what he wants to talk about and just convinces everybody that they should be interested in this too. And if you read Paul's letters, you just kind of get this sense that that guy just, that poor brother just never really quite fit in. And Romans is not any different. Think about what Paul's doing here. He's writing a letter to Rome to tell Roman citizens that they can give up the life they have and find new life in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, to be a Roman citizen is to be on the in crowd. That is the good life. You have rights and privileges and protections that other people don't have, If you're a Roman citizen, you don't have a felt need to belong to any other group. That group is just, it's like being a fraternity guy at UT. You just feel like, this is all I need. This is it. This is the good life. Now, not only that, much less do they have a need to be a part of some group that's founded by this poor teacher from Galilee who, if they can remember correctly, their government crucified as a common criminal. You know, what does a defeated leader and his ragtag bunch of followers, what, does they, what do they have to say to the most powerful nation in the world? So, you can see, I think, perhaps why Paul is tempted at least to feel ashamed. He didn't belong to his own people. He didn't fit in with the people that God had called him to. And by and large, the most powerful and smartest people of his day thought that his message was utter foolishness. But Paul thinks it through. He remembers what he's seen. He knows what he's experienced. He reorients himself to what he knows is true, and he says, you know what? In spite of all that, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God's to salvation to everyone who believes. That's what he knew. That's what he had experienced, that the gospel— has power. It's not just an idea. It's a reality. It has power to make you new, and it doesn't matter who you are because Paul had seen it radically change Jews and Gentiles alike. And so, whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your socioeconomic standing is, whatever your family background, none of that can stop the power of the gospel to change you. Whatever mistakes you've made, they are no match for the power of the gospel to everyone who believes. All you have to do is get off the treadmill. Just just decide you're going to stop trying to prove yourself. You're going to stop defining yourself by the acceptance and the approval you get from people around you. You're going to stop seeking to establish a righteousness of your own because it can't save you, and you know that. When I was a kid, I, uh, I loved the game of Monopoly, and I've played a number of games of Monopoly with my kids. As an adult, you don't like it as much because you realize how stinking long that game takes. But as a kid, you know, you don't have much. You don't have dominion over much. And so just the whole concept of like having all this money and property and dominating somebody to the point of bankruptcy, I mean, it's just it's pretty awesome as a kid, you know? And when kids are young, it's really funny because they're not always able to distinguish between monopoly money and real money. And I've actually read stories of kids who have gone to stores and tried to buy stuff with their monopoly money, and it's super cute. Uh, it would not be cute if you did it, though. Could you imagine, like, like as an adult, like tomorrow— You roll down into Costco, grab a couple carts, and, you know, get a flatbed while you're at it. You just fill those up with all kinds of items. They're at least $10 because nothing at Costco is under $10. You throw throw a new TV on there because how could you not? They're right there when you walk in the door, you know. And you're just like, yeah, I got this. It's awesome. And then you roll up to the register, and the clerk's ringing it all up. It's taking forever because you got all kinds of stuff. And she's like, all right, it's $3,000. And you're like, $3,000 you say? No problem. And you whip out five or six crisp orange $500 bills. (laughs) There you go. Just kind of sit back and wait for your receipt. Now, if you did that, I think the clerk would would chuckle a little bit, you know, that's funny, and just sort of wait for the real money. But you think it's real, remember? And you're adamant about it, and you're kind of in a hurry. It's like, you know, I got to go. You know? And the clerk's like, no, we can't do this. And you start making a little bit of a scene. So she calls the manager over. The manager comes over. He's like, hey, you know, what seems to be the problem here? And you're like, it was $3,000. I gave her $3,000, and I need to get out of here. And the manager's like, whoa, you're getting a little out of hand here, sir. And he threatens to call the police. And you're like, you know what? Call the police. You know what? You know what I got? I got to get out of jail free card right there. <laughs> How's that going to go for you? See, it doesn't matter you could have like a $10,000 Monopoly bill. You know, you just throw it all out there. And it doesn't matter how much you put out there because that doesn't have any real value at Costco or anywhere else for that matter. This is what Paul discovered. When it came to keeping the law of God, nobody was more zealous. Nobody was more blameless than Paul. But then he met Jesus And he realized that it was a false source of righteousness, that in God's economy, everything that he had counted as gain was just monopoly money. In one of his letters, he said, look, I thought I had it all. I thought I had reached the top. I had defeated the treadmill, run it into the ground. But then I met Jesus and I realized that everything that I had counted as gain was actually loss. It was worthless. Listen, this is, this is a man's life we're talking about. Sometimes you read that passage and you're like, oh, that's a good little illustration. No, this is a grown man's life, giving everything he had to this one pursuit. And then someday he's in Costco throwing out orange $500 bills and he realizes, oh, this doesn't work like this. And some of you are going to get there. You're going to hear this and you're just going to keep running on that treadmill And in 10 or 20 or 30 years, you're going to realize, oh, it doesn't work like this. Everything that I'm counting as gain is loss. What is your righteousness? What are you chasing after to give you a sense of worth or belonging? Your job? Now, don't overlook it. Some of you are counting on your job to give you security to give you peace, to give you a sense of importance in this world. Your family, yeah, I'm going to get my family working so good that everybody's going to look at us and be like, now that's a righteous family. And if you have a family, you just know that, that ain't happening. Your income, your knowledge, listen, it's all good stuff, but none of it satisfies the deep longing that we have to belong All Monopoly money. As long as your righteousness is about what you do, you will not be new. At best, you might be improved, but not new, not transformed, not so free that you can join Paul in saying... I don't care what rejection I face in this world, I am absolutely not ashamed of the gospel because of what I have seen it do firsthand in my life and in the lives of people around me. Now, to get there, to get to that wonderful place of freedom and joy, we've just got to understand a little bit about how it is that the gospel does that, what its power really is, how it changes us. That's what Paul addresses in the next verse. Let me catch us up where we are. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the gospel has power because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The power of the gospel lies in its revelation of the righteousness of God. And that is a gigantic phrase that we're not going to cover all of it today. That's what Romans is about. Um, But let me just say this. The righteousness of God, if you kind of trace it through the Scriptures, has this range of meaning. It can mean God's character, sort of His righteous, just, holy character. It can mean God's activity uh, to come to our rescue. It can also mean a status that God bestows upon people. And so it's like a standing that they have. And in Romans, the meaning is primarily that third thing, a status that God bestows. Uh, It doesn't exclude the other things. In fact, they all kind of come to bear in that picture. And here's just kind of a good way of thinking about the gospel. It is the righteous character of God who is holy and just, and therefore, an unrighteous people, an unholy people, are helpless before Him. That's what Romans 5 says. We are helpless in our sin. And to bridge that gap, God sends His Son. It is His righteous activity to come to our rescue by sending His Son, Jesus. The same verse that says we're helpless said that Christ died for the ungodly. And in the result of that, if we believe in Jesus, is that God bestows on us righteousness. His righteousness. And so we have right standing with Him. Now, it's more than just forgiveness. Forgiveness. This is important to know. Um, It is also that we are declared righteous. In other words, our debt is canceled, and on top of that, we are given just unlimited net worth. He wipes the slate clean, and then he fills it with all the riches of his grace. We are cleansed of our filth, and we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's, it's what Todd read in the absolution, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it does not mean that we all of a sudden have the same character as God. It means that our standing with God is made right. God has given us a status of righteous because we are in Christ. And so when God looks at us, he sees his son Jesus, and he loves and accepts us, as he loves and accepts his own son, because we belong to him. This is what Paul says in verse 5. It says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is the gift that God gives us. To believe in Jesus is to say, I have no righteousness of my own, and to rest completely in the righteousness that God gives us through Christ. Uh, Luther put it this way. He said, you know, "To, to believe in God and to receive righteousness is essentially to be like the ground that receives the rain that God gives. The ground doesn't do anything to get the rain. It just receives it and drinks it up and is happy. We belong to him, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done for us. So his merit, his life is our merit. Uh, His death is our atonement. His resurrection from the dead is a real and living power that makes us new. Martin Luther discovered this newness of life right here in this passage. You know, Luther was a troubled fellow, and he felt like a lot of us do. He, he felt that, like, God was perfect and holy and angry with him in some way. At the very least, disappointed with him. He looked at his own life, and he, he saw how wretched he was. He, he was. he was probably pretty introspective, and some of you are like that. You're very in tune with what's going wrong in your soul. Luther was like that. And so, for him, when he looked at verse 17 in Romans 1, and he looked at the righteousness of God, it scared him to death because he knew what it meant. He knew that God was holy and righteous and that he was not, that he fell short in every way. And as longer he looked at himself, the more he knew that the problem ran really deep. And so he would try to fix it. You know, he fasted, he prayed, he took the dirty work at the monastery, he tried to serve his way into God's favor. And just the more he did it, the more he realized it wasn't going to work. For Luther, Romans 1.17 felt like Condemnation, not good news. Because who who could live up to these standards? In fifteen ten, Luther made a pilgrimage to Rome, and there was a a stairway that had supposedly been brought in from Jerusalem. Uh, Supposedly had been used by Jesus, and so people would make a, a, a pilgrimage there. The devout would literally crawl up the stairs, hands and knees, and as they got to each stair, they would kiss the stair, and they would pray. And go to the next stair. And it was a way that they were trying to be contrite, a way that they were trying to show God that they really are submissive to him, and that, and that by doing this, some way God would be pleased and accept them. And Luther would climb up the stairs. Ray Ortland tells a story, uh, and he sort of had two minds in himself. He'd get to one stair, and he would remember Paul's words, "The righteous live by faith," meaning "I'm made righteous through faith." And then he'd get to the next stair, and it would be fear, fear of rejection. Fear that I go all in with Jesus and I don't come out new. And then it would be faith. No, God really wants to change me. And then it would be fear. Fear that I don't do it right. Fear that this whole thing's not really true. And then it would be faith. No, God wants to change me. And just over and over the treadmill. Some of you are stuck right there on that staircase. You want to believe the gospel's for you, but you half the time are driven by fear. Fear that you won't do it right. Fear that these people right here won't accept you. I mean, if they really know the junk that's going on in your life, you think they're going to accept you, that's the fear you have. Maybe fear that God won't accept you. Being good enough, that's the currency of our world. And I'm telling you, it's monopoly money. It won't get you anything. The real riches are with God irrevocable pardon, imperishable inheritance, unstoppable power, that is the riches of God's grace. The gospel is a whole new way of life. It's not just a a little better method than what you've tried before. It's a whole new way of seeing and living in the world. It's new ground rules, and the ground rules are throw down your righteousness and take up new life in Christ. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for you this year when you get to the place where you don't fear rejection or failure anymore? I mean, can you just taste how sweet it's going to be when you are personally satisfied in Jesus to the point that you don't feel ashamed about your life? That's going to be so good. That's the journey we're on. When my son Holden said he wanted to be new and start over, I I gotta be honest with you, it was heartbreaking as a dad. I have worked so hard for my kids to know that they are just loved for who they are. And I was so angry as I thought about it. I'm so angry that they live in a world that measures them by their performance and that condemns them when they fail. I'm angry that I have in some way Let that seep into my own parenting. I've put my own children on those scales. And I'm angry that I can't do anything about it. I can't fix Holden. All I can do is tell him to turn to Jesus, to rest in him, and to be made new because of the righteousness that God gives him in Christ. And that's all I can tell you as well. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.